Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and today I am joined by frequent guest co-host Grant. Welcome, Grant. It's wonderful to be here. (laughs) I'm so happy you're here because I have let you do the hard work of uh, researching mythology for me. (laughs) It's not really such hard work. There are people who break stones with sledgehammers for a living. Okay, okay. So this is fun. We do this. It's fun. Grant, what's our opera today? Our opera for today is L'Orfeo, or Orpheus. Orpheus. It's the same Orpheus, isn't it, Grant, that I did earlier on episode 63 with guest co-host Patria Fossil. We did Orfeo Eurydice by the composer Gluck, who wrote his opera in 1762. But this is much earlier. Yeah, there's something about this story that people keep wanting to come back to. Can't imagine why. Oh, yes, you can. By the way, it is opera's most popular myth. Certainly a lot of mythological subjects and characters are present in opera. But Orpheus and Eurydice, their story is particularly inspirational to those who want to create a music drama. I found a list of 67 different operas on this very subject. Oh, my goodness. They're not all still in repertoire, but several of them are. Yes, and in fact quite a few of the very earliest operas are on this topic, including what is considered to be, by some people, the earliest opera, and this, which is the earliest opera still in repertoire. It is. And tell us a little bit about that opera, which is considered to be, or those operas, which are considered to be the very earliest. When when would those be? Around the year 1600. And that's when people start moving from the forms that existed previously, in particular the oratorio, The form of opera develops out of oratorio, although, of course, oratorios continue to be made. And this is where we start seeing these more dramatic elements being incorporated. This myth, in particular, is the subject of a whole bunch of the first few attempts at what we think of these days as opera. And it has been a popular topic ever since. Right. And I think we ought to mention that... All of these very earliest operas are composed and produced in what we would now call Italy or in the Italian states. There's a great deal of interest among a lot of the very well-educated in uh, looking into the musical elements of Greek theater, and that's very inspirational to them. Yeah, there is sort of a fascinating fusion of the concepts of the ideas within Greek myth and drama with the ideas of Christian theology and church music. These two come together quite beautifully, I think, in this opera in particular. Yeah, it's well, it's exquisite. I think you're all going to enjoy listening to it as we go along, but there's there's certainly a lot of information and background we we hope to provide as as we do that. But maybe we should just go ahead and jump in and listen to some of the prologue, which is sung by a character called Music. She's going to set the stage and let us know what we're in for.
This is Opera for Everyone, and today we are listening to L'Orfeo by Claudio Monteverdi, the earliest opera fully surviving and still played in repertoire. And that character we were just listening to provided us with the prologue to this five-act opera, and that character's name is Music. I think that raised the issue we were alluding to previously about why this opera is so opera why, why this myth ends up in story after story and retelling after retelling, particularly in opera. And that is that it is the story of a demigod, a hero of music, a deified mortal son of a god who represents the power that music can have. So true. And, and he interacts here with music, who seems to be some kind of muse, right? That's where the word music comes from. A muse is... I never have... Wait, stop. I never have connected those two before. Muse and music. Yeah. Two two words I know, but I never put them together. (laughs) Yeah, the the muses, these gods of the arts, of poetry, of music, of visual art, and there are different numbers of them, depending on who you ask, but they represent these creative impulses and music is one of the foremost among them. Well, could we talk for a second about not just Orpheus, but in mythology, who are Orpheus's parents? Well, as with everything in mythology, it really depends on who you ask. Okay. (laughs) In this play, it's very explicit that Apollo, who is the, well, he's the god of many things, but he's the god of, of music and of archery and the sun, and he represents these certain higher impulses in humanity and he is in both literal and in fact figurative senses orpheus's father the two are both patrons of music and represent the creativity and creative power of music and in one of the accounts i read his mother was the muse calliope yes the muse of epic poetry Well, epic poetry and music, I mean, that's opera right there, isn't it? Very much so, yeah. That's the the origins of it. And it is kind of funny that opera, as we know, it starts with this meditation on the power of music in a a variety of different early operas, whether they're named for Eurydice or Orpheus and Eurydice, or in this case, and in the case of most subsequent ones, Orpheus himself. It's it's phenomenal, and it's it's also interesting. You you mentioned this uh, when we were speaking earlier, but it's in this very Christian era in Italy when this is occurring. These Orpheus operas are being created, and we're seeing the early formations of opera as we know it. But they're all focused on characters from Greek mythology, pre-Christian, pagan. Yeah, and I think part of that there's just a historical reason where. They're trying to blend these sacred and secular forms and motifs, right? Theater is seen as a very secular form in this time, and uh, musical performance is seen as a very sacred art form. They're blending them, and one of the ways that they're able to blend them is with Greek mythology, which very cleanly in certain ways, messily in others, overlaps between the sacred and secular European culture, and Italian culture in particular. Well... Music in her prologue gets us ready for what we're about to hear. I have to say, 
When I watched this and, and read the libretto, I'm, I'm reminded of a certain number of Shakespeare shows where the one character comes on and, and speaks to us very eloquently about what we're about to see and experience. Yeah, and in both cases, the reference is to ancient Greek epic poetry. In the ancient Greek epic poems, in the very beginning, the first thing you do is you ask for the help of the muses. You say, sing, O goddess, of the wrath of the mighty godlike Achilles. That's how the Iliad begins. Or uh, sing, O muse, of the man of many twists and turns. That's the Odyssey. And, and in Shakespeare, I love, the, this I is, love the fact that you know that just right off the top of your head. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> well, I'm sure someone will, will check and uh, show that there's no translation exactly like what I've said. But uh, I've also read a few different translations. And it turns out people argue very strenuously about how to translate those words. Okay, but, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> but Shakespeare himself very consciously references this, sometimes more explicitly than others, but Henry V begins, Oh, for a muse of fire that would ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage and princes to act. That's That's him echoing the same motif that begins the epic poems uh, from Greek times and then later from Roman times and here is being invoked again although here it is not someone invoking the muse but the muse herself come from Parnassus the home and sanctuary of the muses to tell us about music and that is explicitly what she is trying to do as she is teaching the audience about the power of music. for everyone in today's opera is L'Orfeo by Claudio Monteverdi, an opera that was first performed early in the 17th century, 1607. My co-host today is Grant, 
And Grant, we've just listened to some of the very beginning of the first act of L'Orfeo. What's happening here? Well, we're off to a good start. Good. (laughs) Yeah, I'm feeling pretty good about this story. I think it'll work out fine. Do you? What's Uh, happening now? (laughs) No, I do not. Uh, I know enough about how stories work to know that if things are happy in the beginning, they're probably sad at the end. Mm. Or at least in the middle. (laughs) Okay. So we find ourselves with a shepherd. And there's a shepherd, and there's a chorus, and there's a nymph, and they are all so very happy, and they're singing this lovely pastoral, in the literal and figurative sense, music. And those of you who listen to our Christmas special will be very familiar with cheerful pastoral tunes with shepherds. Oh, and yes, the shepherd's chorus. <laughs> and so we've got, we've got a happy Thank little Thank you, shepherds. Berlioz. <laughs> we've got a she- happy little shepherd's chorus here. And it's about how Orpheus is getting married. Yes, today fair Eurydice's heart, formerly so disdainful, has been touched with compassion. Today Orpheus has been made happy. So everyone is singing, and they're happy, because Orpheus is, uh, well, he's, he's already a great and famous musician at this point. And you know how, like, like when Adele got married. We were all just, we were such, so rooting for her because we'd listened to the songs and we knew how rough it had been for her. And we were like, you know, she's, she's, she's had a, like, let her have it. This is great. And, uh, and that's kind of the, the mood that everyone is in. Right. And they do dwell on the fact that he had it really rough before. And I, I imagine he shared that in his very powerful music. Yeah. And I think that one of the initial muse lessons about music is that we're, seeing how music has a power for joy and for sorrow. Mm. Well, we're having joy right now. We're having celebration. We we kicked off the last piece of music with a little bit of what in this opera is called a ballet. It's not going to be like those lengthy ballets in the French operas, but a little bit of dance music will play. And then we've heard this this chorus of nymphs and shepherds, and they're so celebratory, and they're just so happy for Orpheus and for Eurydice, celebrating the, the two lovers. And soon we're going to hear from the man himself, Orpheus, is going to sing a song of joy. Can you tell us a little bit about what Orpheus has to say? Orpheus is just so happy to be in love, and even happier that she, at least now, loves him back and he is uh got some piety in there and he's got some strong words of devotion to his lover and most of what he's doing is just singing beautifully Mm. and Eurydice will respond in much shorter length by the way Orpheus really takes center stage in this show but Eurydice will respond about her happiness and says my heart is no longer with me but it resides in you in the company of love which is interesting it's not exactly the same thing there is some sense in this story that the love between them is not exactly equal there is some sense Mm -hmm. in which when eurydice is in love she is not herself and when orpheus is in love he is especially himself oh intriguing yeah. Well, let's hear a little bit from Orpheus as he sings about his extreme pleasure and his love. Oh, that 
frena. Sol che tutto circondi e tutto miri dagli stellanti giri, dimmi che vesti mai di me più lieto e fortunato amante. Fu ben felice il giorno mio ben che fria di That was Orpheus himself in the opera L'Orfeo by Monteverdi. And Grant, with your permission... I'm very permissive. (laughs) With your permission, I think we're just going to segue right into more of the choral celebration, which is going to close out this very joyous and celebratory act one of this five-act opera.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, and this is Orfeo by Claudio Monteverdi. I'm Pat Wright, and my co-host today is Grant. We should take a moment to talk about our composer today, Claudio Monteverdi, who was born in the mid to late 16th century. At the time that he composed this opera, he was the choir master in the palace of the Duke of Mantua the Duke being Vincenzo Gonzaga, and his elder son Francesco Gonzaga is the man who, at the age of 21, commissioned this this performance piece, hoping it would be wonderful and special because he had a little bit of sibling rivalry going on with his brother. Fernando Gonzaga, his younger brother, was, I mean, he was truly a musical prodigy. He had been sent off to cultivate his gifts, but... Francesco may not have had the same skills of music on his own, but he certainly proved to be a good administrator in pulling people together to help Monteverdi create this this work. The libretto itself was written by Alessandro Strigio, and Strigio was a court secretary, also a musician. And Strigio really was happy to bring this work to Monteverdi. Of course they knew about the earlier versions. It wasn't that much earlier. In 1601, Jacopo Perry had created an opera called Eurydice, Eurydice, and Giulio Caccini had set the same libretto that Perry had used to his own music, also creating another opera. And both of these librettos were based on the Florentine poet, who was part of the Camerata, Ottavio Renucci's play that he had written on, on the subject of these two characters. So Francesco Gonzaga was was thrilled to have these two talented people in his father's court. And, I mean, as it turned out, it was not even the main event during this end of the carnival season when so many entertainments were put on in in Italy. And Grant, just as a quick reminder, tell us about carnival season and why entertainments would be put on then. Carnival is the big festival that happens in the Catholic calendar in the run-up to Lent. Lent being a time when you're probably not going to be doing frivolous entertainments. Exactly. So you party hard and then, you know, give up chocolate or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, another another thing that's kind of interesting is this was purely written as an entertainment. Most other music dramas up to this point were in celebration of some event or the arrival of some personage. Maybe it would be celebrating a a coronation or a wedding or the arrival of some great dignitary. But this was simply put on as an entertainment during this uh, latter part of the carnival season. It was the end of February when this premieres in 1607 at the Ducal Palace and not even in the largest room. So it's, it's even believed that probably there was not as much staging and movement when this was first performed just because there wasn't the room for them to move around. But they were acting it out to the best of their abilities. Another piece of information that you might find interesting here was that librettos were printed up and handed out to all the people attending this first performance in 1607 and they loved it and in fact the duke who attended the father of the man who brought this all together and made it possible he loved it and he asked for it to be performed again a couple of days later 
Another set of librettos was printed up and they were given a larger room to perform it in. So it was successful on a small scale, certainly by today's standards. But if you can thrill the Duke and thrill all the listeners, uh, you're going to have potential to move on. (laughs) If I've learned anything from Bridgerton, it's it's all about thrilling the Duke. (laughs) I'm not caught up. a tiny bit of that <laughs> oh, one other one other thing I wanted to let you know is that in this original performance we don't know 100% for sure but we think it's very likely from the evidence that can be found is that all of the female roles were probably sung by Castrati in fact Francesco asked his younger brother Ferdinando the one with all the musical connections to send please a castrato from the court of the Grand Duke of Tuscany to perform in Orfeo. So there was sibling rivalry, but there was also a certain amount of working together. And even though there was limited time for rehearsal, apparently this was a very skilled singer and he learned the part quite quickly. And Francesco was thrilled. And all the listeners were thrilled as well. Hurrah! (laughs) Hurrah! So act two of L'Orfeo. We are still in the fields of Thrace. We are still in a celebratory mood. So what could possibly be different? What's going to change? Or is this just how it is? We're just going to sing happy little songs now. We need drama. Didn't we say we need a drama? (laughs) I think there will probably be drama. So if our first act is a song of rejoicing, our second act is a song of shock and horror and terror. Right. And the shock and the horror and the terror is first delivered, of course, by a messenger. Yeah, you got to just shoot those people when they show up, because otherwise it costs nothing but trouble. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's never the messenger's fault, I think. <laughs> nope, just shoot the messenger. It solves the problem. So the messenger shows up. And by the way, we haven't even seen Eurydice leave the stage, but indeed she has. And the messenger is grief-stricken, but she has a message to deliver. Eurydice has died. No! I know, right? No! <laughs> I thought those crazy kids were going to make it work too, but yeah, they, there was a, a a snake bit her while she was picking flowers. So let's listen a little bit to the drama and the change in tone as Orpheus is singing about his happiness and how it's all changed from when he was desperately in love and Eurydice didn't receive him gladly and now she has and and he is really the happiest man on earth and then the messenger comes in and things change Ti 
sembrai, di ti allora non mi sembrai, più d'ogni altro sconsolato, or fortuna e stil cangiato, ed a volto in festa i guai, di ti allora non mi sembrai, più d'ogni altro sconsolato.
e vieni, ove vai, ninfa che porti. Ai, 
have gone from blissfully happy to desperately sad here in the story of Orpheus as told by composer Monteverdi and his librettist Strigio. The messenger has told Orpheus that his new bride has died due to a snake bite and there's grieving all around. <laughs> Grant, what can you tell us about the myth that this is based on? So in every version of the myth, Eurydice dies. And basically every version has a slightly different way that she dies. The snake bite is pretty standard, but is she picking flowers? Perhaps. But in some versions, she's running away from a pursuer. In some versions, Orpheus is with her. In some, he isn't. And sometimes there's a lot of variety and you can take something from that. And sometimes there's a lot of variety and you can take... Well, nothing at all from the variety. What you can take is that what matters is the constant. What matters is that she dies. Mm. Suddenly, tragically, and without really having a chance to say goodbye. Right. Well, certainly in this story, it feels when you watch this opera that that this moment happens very quickly. I mean, you really, it's not like she makes a, bye, bye, my loving husband, I'm going to pick flowers. She's just absent from the stage. And you might even miss that because she's not playing such a major role here. And then the the grief-stricken messenger and companion comes in to tell Orpheus what's happened. And Orpheus is dumbstruck for a while. And the lamentation in the beginning is from the the other folks on stage, the the nymphs and the shepherds. Which I think says something about Orpheus and indeed about music. That in this moment, he who can sing all his emotions is unable to sing and is mute for quite some time. Right, and they're they're a little concerned about him, but he does finally rouse himself and share a little bit of what he's thinking. And what he's thinking is, oh my beloved, you are dead and I still breathe? And he's trying to make, make sense of this. And he resolves very quickly about a plan of action. What's his action gonna be? He resolves that he is going to go down into the abyss, into Hades, the realm of the dead. And he's going to speak to the god of the dead and ask for her back. That's a confident man. Yes, and what his confidence in is, of course, his music. He says, if verses can do anything, I will go safely into the deepest abyss. Well... So he's he's sung all this, and as an audience, we know what he's resolved to do. But it, it's interesting, as the shepherds and the nymphs continue to sing, it's not at all clear that he's spoken in a way that they can hear him. They continue to grieve and, 
and ask for consolation and mourn the passing of Eurydice, whom they all loved. Well, in truth, when someone says, I'm going to go to the gates of hell and get my love back, most of us think that that's a figure of speech. But, you know. <laughs> not here. <laughs> Orpheus is not messing around. No, he's not. He is, he is utterly serious. So let's listen a little bit to the shepherds and the nymphs sing as they are grieving themselves and grieving for Orpheus. One of the things they say, which I find so interesting, because it's in direct contrast to what was said earlier, they say, all of this mournful day is so much sadder because we were so joyful before. So they're noting the opposite of what Orpheus had noted before, that he was so happy because he had been so miserable before. And here, these observers are saying, oh, we are so much sadder now because we were so happy before, just as it was with Orpheus. listening to opera for everyone and today's opera is Orfeo by Claudio Monteverdi and we've just concluded the second act of our five-act opera plus prologue and we're starting in act three but we're no longer in the fields of Thrace. Orpheus finds himself headed toward the gates of the underworld escorted by of all people hope 
Who is, of course, hope, a goddess. <laughs> hope, a goddess. We had music before, and now we have hope. Yes, and and here is hope, and hope is ushering Orpheus forward. She is his companion on this, uh, well, rather mad quest. Well, if you're going to have a companion on a very difficult quest, I think hope seems like a great one to have. Should we hear a hopeful song? <laughs> Let's do that. opera for everyone and we just heard from Orpheus and Hope in L'Orfeo by Claudio Monteverdi. We could all use a little more hope. We could, but but Grant, was that a hopeful song? Didn't really sound like it, did it? No, you promised us a hopeful song. <laughs> I promised you Hope's song. Is it all that hopeful? Okay, maybe I said hopeful song. But anyway, it's it's uh there's a hope in the song. <laughs> Sort of, kind of, until a moment. So Hope gets to the point in her song where she has arrived at the gates of hell, the gates of Hades. I'm sure she'll stick around. <laughs> oh, no, I hate it when you use that tone. 
Uh-oh. Well, she does have some very important advice for him, and advice that will not be surprising to anyone familiar with the story. She tells Orpheus, now you have need of a stout heart and an entrancing song. Or in Italian, bel canto. <gasps> one of our favorite words here on Opera for Everyone. <laughs> bel canto before bel canto was cool, huh? Yeah, bel canto before it became a term of art. Well, I guess it's still a term of art, but anyway. So, But things change when she gives this last piece of advice to Orpheus. Yeah, and this is where we get some of that blending I was talking about, where we've got Greek mythology and Christian theology running into each other headlong. And so the reason why Hope can't go any further is that they have arrived at the gates of hell. And the gates of hell in Dante's Inferno famously read, Abandon hope, all ye who enter. Oh. And so this is nowhere in the Bible. This is nowhere in Greek mythology. This is purely Dante's invention, a few a few centuries old at this point. And that is the reason that he can't bring his guide, Hope, with him. So abandon hope, all ye who enter, means hope must depart. <laughs> yes, in the most literal way. It's like in uh, whatever that terrible Nathaniel Hawthorne story is, where <laughs> he's got his, he's looking for his wife, Faith, and he can't find her. And he's like, I have lost my faith. And we're like, we get it, Nathaniel Hawthorne. You wanted English students to be annoyed by you for the rest of time. But uh, lovely literature, I'm sure. Am I too harsh on Nathaniel Hawthorne? Uh-huh. But back to our opera, <laughs> Abandon Hope. So Hope abandons him. At least his guide abandons him. But he carries on. Yes. And hopes that he still has hope or hopes in some way without the goddess hope. But it's intriguing, this mixture, which we'll see throughout this opera, both in terms of the style and the form, as well as in terms of the content, where it is this combination of Greek mythology and Christian theology. Dante's not exactly theology. In fact, you could reasonably call him Christian mythology. Mm. But there are there are all these nods to actual Greek mythology. They talk about Pluto, the god of death, and the river that you have to cross. The river Styx. Or the rather Lethe. You never know. But it's the place that you pass from the world of the living to the world of the dead. There was actually a location in Greece where a lot of people thought the portal to the underworld was a place where natural sulfurous fumes would come up. And this is in legend where Orpheus enters and departs from the underworld. Yeah, I was going to say, if I had to go down to the underworld, I'm not sure where I'd find the door. But in ancient Greece, everyone knew where the door was. It was a known thing, and you could go there. And um, wow, it's like uh, if you've ever been to Yellowstone, which is very close to our home base in Wyoming. Yes, it is. Yes, there's there can be a little sulfur smell in certain places, sure. Indeed, and portals to the underworld. There are oh. these open gaping chasms that sulfurous fumes come out and there is boiling water at the bottom and the unfortunate souls who do occasionally either drink the water or fall in find themselves rapidly in the underworld oh okay this just got a little too serious sorry all right so hope has left the goddess hope has left and orpheus is not alone for long so he meets the boatman the boatman there's a a funeral ritual that you'd put a coin to to pay the boatman. The boatman is the one who takes you to the realm of the dead, and he takes you across 
this river. Sometimes the river of forgetting, sometimes the river goes by other names, sometimes the boatman's identity himself is disputed, but the boatman, who is kind of confused by what Orpheus is doing. Right, because he's not dead. He's not dead, and that's, that's, that's only dead people allowed. And so, if he's not dead, he doesn't get to go on the boat. Yeah, and so Orpheus sings a beautiful song to enchant even the boatman who guards the way to the underworld.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. It airs on 89.1 KHOL, Sundays, 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time, in beautiful Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud where you can find a treasure trove of past episodes. I'm your host today, Pat Wright. And I'm Grant. Stay tuned. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I'm joined today by special guest co-host and frequent guest co-host, Grant. It's good to be back. Well, Grant, before we carry on with the story, we have a few things we need to do at the top of the second hour. And first, I'd like to thank all of those involved in the production of the particular CD we are listening to. This CD was recorded in 1985 with the Monteverdi Choir, the English Baroque soloists, and His Majesty's Sagbuts and Cornets. The conductor was John Elliott Gardner. And our singers, Orfeo, Anthony Rolf Johnson. Eurydice is sung by Julianne Baird. The Muse Music, sung by Lynn Dawson, The Messenger, and Sophie Von Otter. Hope sung by Mary Nichols, the boatman John Tomlinson, and we haven't yet heard from either Persephone or Pluto, but they're coming up. Persephone sung by Diana Montague, and Pluto sung by Willard White. Thank you to all the people involved in the production of this beautiful music. Shall we carry on? No, I think we have important business to attend to first. Are you ready for a quiz? (laughs) Right. Uh, I hope so. Wish me luck. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Who wrote this opera? Claudio Monteverdi, that great musician of the late 16th and early 17th century. Hey, I have something I wanted to say to you about Claudio Monteverdi that we haven't said so far. Did Uh you know that he was very, (laughs) did you know that he was very famous as a madrigalist? Um, that's, that's good. We all need some extra magic in our lives. Not magician, madrigalist. He... Uh, maybe that I made that word up. I don't know. He was the foremost composer of madrigals of his time, I have read. And this is really produced at a time, we talk about the early roots of opera starting in about 1600. This is premieres in 1607. And he, the form of madrigal, which we typically associate as a medieval style of music, it's it's indicative of the fact that This is really a turning point in terms of musical composition from madrigal more self-consciously into opera. This opera was composed as a a sort of academic exercise to set a a model for how you might tell such a a drama in music. But I digress, and I'm sure you'll ding me on my answer. (laughs) 
I don't have any grading power here. We sent it into a team of professionals. I, I hope you're writing in your answers with a number two pencil. Um, okay. I'll... All right, and with that being said, your question is, what is our hero's job? What does he do? Music. He sings. He enchants with his beautiful music. And how is he at that? The best ever. Oh, except except for perhaps his father, Apollo, the god of music. And does that make everything go real easy for him? Sometimes, but not always. To elaborate. Tell more. <laughs> Expand on your answer. <laughs> I'm just helping you out so the guys with the number two pencils don't like have to do too much work. Uh-huh. Although this isn't portrayed in the opera, I imagine one of the good things that happened to him is he won the heart of his true love, Eurydice. And what a wonderful thing that is. True love is so rare. Far too rare. Yes, although you did make the point earlier that when he's truly in love, Orpheus is ever so much more himself, but not so much for Eurydice. She's a little less of herself. It's kind of bumpy with her. This this show doesn't focus tremendously on Eurydice. It's They're not equal players in this depiction of their story. Which is interesting because the most prominent previous tellings of the story did often focus on Eurydice in particular. Yes. So I, I gather that everything's smooth sailing for this Orpheus guy. He gets the girl of his dreams and happy ending? Well, except for that pesky snake who bit and injected her with poison and killed her. You gotta watch out for snakes interrupting paradises. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it never turns out well. <laughs> uh, but then there's hope. But then there's hope. Literally, there's hope. I know. I love that. Literal music and literal hope in this show. But hope has abandoned him because he is entering the gates of hell. And is that a well-known part of Greek mythology? No, that is taken from Dante and his famous work, The Inferno. But a lot of, I mean, Dante is so important to our culture that a lot of his ideas infuse our culture to the point that we don't even know that that's where they come from. Yes. Yeah. Dante and Milton, like, wrote half the Bible. Of course, they didn't write any of the Bible, but a lot of what people think they know about the Bible is actually from those two. Right. Like the apple in the Garden of Eden. Yep. Yeah. Bible just says fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Yes. Many scholars think more likely to be something closer to a pomegranate. We'll circle back to that. Looking forward to that. (laughs) I'm going to hold you to that one, Grant. All right. One other thing I just wanted to mention about this time period question for you when was this first presented uh 16 oh i want to say seven you're right it was also (laughs) as speaking of score when was the score first published you know i've never believed in keeping score oh that's good that's good two years later 1609 was when the score to this opera was first published but it's interesting because we mentioned that libretti were printed out and handed out to all the attendees at the 1607 performances. And they have a different ending from what is in the published score, the score that's published two years later. Musically or narratively? Narratively. Uh Uh-oh. Specifically with how it all ends up for Orpheus. But just as you've promised me pomegranates later, I promise you that I'll circle back to that when we get to the final act. Cool. I'll share mythology. You share music history. (laughs) the narrative part. So let's get back to our story. When last we saw Orpheus, we left him in the underworld and he was singing. Can you bring us up to speed and tell us what comes next, Grant? 
Yeah, so Orpheus has passed through the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the gates of the underworld. All these words kind of get intermingled. They do have meanings that you can, to some extent, separate out, but the reality is that this play in particular, and indeed anything that smushes together Greek and Christian ideas about the afterlife, it ends up as a mushy ball of, huh? And so... <laughs> I'm sorry, are those technical terms? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's important how you how you spell that with uh, it's got an terabang at the end. Excellent. But yeah, it's the realm of the dead. We'll say that. And he has gone through the gates, and now he is trying to cross the river. Orpheus is trying to cross the river to see his beloved, and he has to convince the boatman to grant him passage. And the boatman has no desire to do any such thing because he is a creature utterly without pity and utterly unbribable. And and yet Orpheus charms him with the power of music. Well, the last thing we were listening to right before the end of the first half, Orpheus sings this beautiful song to the boatman with the most enchanting music that he can muster. And does the boatman say, oh, absolutely, I pity you. Just jump in my boat. No, pity is pity is not really his thing. And in fact, that probably makes a certain amount of sense to have the guy guarding the gate of the underworld not to move to pity or else people would be coming and going all the time. <laughs> right. Instead, Orpheus moves to a new strategy, which is to sing a lullaby. Ooh. And he puts the watchful guardian to sleep and, you know, nicks his boat. Yeah, that's a certain amount of courage to, to do that. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, really, when you get down to it, who among us hasn't knocked out a boatman and stolen his boat at least once in our lives? Uh, I have not. Gee, <laughs> is there something you want to share with all of us? Not on broadcast radio. All right, then let's move on. Once Orpheus jumps in the boat, there's this line which honestly tugs at my heart every time I read it or hear it. Whilst my eyes pour forth streams of bitter tears, give me back my love, ye gods of Tartarus. Which is a line he's used several times previous to this, but he's moved into action at this point. Yeah, he's a man on a mission. Will not be dissuaded, and he has a claim. He's going to try and press that claim. And we are coming to the end of Act 3 of our five-act opera, And as he gets to the other side of the bank, he is greeted by a chorus of spirits. And so the chorus of spirits recognizes Orpheus as a hero. A hero not just in our sense of someone who is brave or does the right thing, but rather as someone who transcends beyond what is ordinarily possible for mortals and enters the veil of divinity.
listening to Opera for Everyone, and we have just concluded Act 3 of Monteverdi's groundbreaking opera, L'Orfeo. And we have just seen Orfeo enter the underworld, try to charm the boatman, ultimately put him to sleep, steal over to the other side of the river in the boatman's boat without his permission, and... The next thing we see is a scene without Orpheus present. We are transported to the court of Pluto, the god of death, also known as a dog in service to Mickey Mouse. <laughs> I thought you were going to say also known as Hades, but <laughs> it's it's the Greek-Roman thing, right? Yeah, so uh, a lot of the... Roman and Greek gods come to be equated to the point where their names are treated as interchangeable. And so, yes, we have we have Hades, Pluto, however you want to name this character, but the character is the unknowable power of the underworld, and all that goes into it and comes out of it. He is the wealthiest god, for he is the god who presides over all the gold under the earth. But he is also the god who takes in these spirits that have no place to go. And he is accompanied by his lovely wife, and they are ever the odd couple. Grant, will you tell us the story about how the god of the underworld, Pluto in this case, acquires his queen consort? Well, uh, it turns out that the god of death is um, is not big on being like, you know, what we call a, a, a nice dude, a good person. Oh. So what he does is he oh, just... Oh, it's, it's not sweet romance? <laughs> not so much. No, it's a kidnapping, actually. Oh. He, he, he breaks open the surface of the earth, and he grabs the beautiful girl, Persephone, Prosperina, and drags her down into the underworld. And she is the daughter of the goddess of the harvest, uh, Ceres in the, in the Roman version. And her kidnap causes the harvests to fail as Demeter Ceres is totally overwhelmed by her grief in consulate that her daughter has been taken from her by death and there are no crops and the first ever winter sets in and eventually the gods are upset and they decide that this cannot go on any longer so they decide to cut a deal with Pluto to get her back out. But it turns out that while she was there, Pluto, Hades, gave her a pomegranate from which she ate six seeds. Oh, well, we didn't have to wait long for you to explain how the pomegranate figures in. And the six seeds meant that she has eaten the food of the dead. Mm. And she is now in some way a creature of the underworld. And so for the rest of time, for six months, she may be with her mother and frolic and bring crops and joy and merriment. And for six months every year, she must go down to the underworld and the world itself become a little more dead. So Persephone is this this odd character where she and Hades, in certain versions of the story, they are... They have become affectionate to each other. In certain versions of the story, they are this sort of typical, they're married but don't really like each other. <laughs> but it is it is quite common in the myths that she is presented as the softer 
side of death and mm-hmm. the good influence on him and the uh, kinder part of the underworld. And that's what we see here at the opening of Act 4. She is speaking, singing to Pluto, asking for some mercy because she has truly been moved, as so many are, by the songs of lament that Orpheus has offered. Yes. And so she asks Pluto, her husband, what can he do? What does Pluto do? He says that immovable and severe fate are against your desires, beloved wife, but I cannot refuse. And so he too is moved and comes up with a plan. The plan is that Orpheus may recover Eurydice, but only if he leads her out of the kingdom of the dead without ever looking back and if he ever looks back she shall be eternally lost so the king of the dead decides to grant mercy even though it's against what the fates have decreed and if you know anything at all about greek mythology you know how it usually works out if you do something (laughs) contrary to the will of the fates uh never works out you cannot escape the fates which is interesting that even the gods are 
in certain ways subservient. They are subject to some of the same rules as everybody else. Mm. And indeed, the fates are sometimes personified. And they are subject to some of the same people as everybody else. They cannot alter what the fates have decreed. Pluto comes up with a plan, but whether he knows it or not, it is doomed to fail because the fates cannot be defied. And I would just like to insert here that the fact that he has said yes to the entreaties of his wife, Persephone, she is overjoyed. This is not something directly affecting her other than she was moved to pity and compassion by Orpheus. But because her husband has said yes, he'll figure out a way to help, you see her becoming more in love with her husband here. Seems to say something about the power of that music and the love that it portends. Exactly. She says, blessed be the day when I first pleased you. Blessed be the abduction and the sweet deception since, to my good fortune, while losing the sun, I gained you. And he's equally happy. Your sweet words revive in my heart the ancient wound of love. Let not your soul become so desirous of heavenly delight that it forsake the marriage bed. And the chorus joins in compassion and love triumph today in Hades. It's interesting, right? Orpheus brings this song of love into the underworld and he seems to make this one couple's marriage a little better. Yeah. We'll see if it works out for him. Right. This is Opera for Everyone, and that was a glimpse at a royal marriage in the underworld, Persephone and Pluto, and a chorus of spirits celebrating their love. But we return back to Orpheus and his plight. So Orpheus, apparently off-screen, has now been given Pluto's instruction. He is to take Eurydice and lead her out of the underworld, but never look back. And this is a familiar mythological, legendary trope, of course. The idea that you can do something that might be impossible, but you can't look behind you. And it plays on ideas of trust, and it plays on ideas of what we leave behind, and memory and nostalgia. But in this moment, all we see is the man Orpheus striving to 
to lead his beloved wife out from the underworld back into the land of the living, praising his lyre for its incredible power, and yet fearful that she doesn't follow him any longer. It's a dangerous place, the underworld. All kinds of things can happen, and I can understand him being fearful. That's a terrible condition that Pluto placed on him. And indeed, the Greek gods are not known for, (laughs) shall we say, playing fair. No. It doesn't entirely appear to me, anyway, that Pluto is playing fair. I think he knows that he can't avert the will of the fates, and he comes up with a way to placate his wife that's what he was doing he was placating his wife wife. yeah (laughs) you know i never hmm. the god of death he's not he's not super on the up and up as they say i mean again this is different different versions of the story but i think that because this version of the story does dwell on the fact that fate is immovable and fate has decreed her death that we are given more of a sense in this particular version that Hades does know what's going on. Yes. And is aware that this isn't going to work out. Yes. I'm reminded of the, uh, when we did the Gluck opera on Orpheus and Eurydice, that the encounter between Orpheus and Eurydice is much longer and more drawn out. and, And it's one of those moments where you think oh maybe this time it'll turn out differently maybe it'll be okay he won't turn around but in this particular opera it's a very short time before he's he's given the opportunity to rescue his wife and she vanishes because he looks there is a noise and he says what do i hear woe is me oh no perhaps the furies are taking up arms and she's in danger and he looks to see for her safety and that's the end of it yeah he doesn't get through a single song before he turns around right and it's only after he has turned around and he has lost her for a second time that we finally hear from Eurydice and she poses the bitter paradox that it is precisely because he loves her too much that he loses her the second time. It's precisely because he was worried about her, worried about the terrifying furies, the violent creatures of the underworld, that he was unable to continue forward on his goal. She is the only thing he wants to see. She is the only thing he cares for. And so, of course, he can't just keep looking forward. Well, I just got chills up and down my spine hearing you describe it again it's so it's so sad through an excess of love you lose me oh my husband you are more precious to me than all else so they reaffirm their love but do not get to be together and so the the spirits usher her away to the darkness and announce that hades can no longer hear orpheus's prayers and Orpheus, in his grief, shouts out, Where are you going, my life? I will follow you. And then he realizes he can't because he's alive. And he wonders, what, what's preventing me from following you? Am, am I dreaming? Am I delirious? <laughs> Ecco 
seguo, ma chi mi niego in me sogno vanteggio, qual occulto poter di questi orrori, da questi amati orrori, ma il mio grano mi tragge e mi conduce all'odiosa luce. What occult power among these horrors drags me against my will from these horrors I love and leads me up to the hateful light. He doesn't even want to return to the living. He is so brokenhearted. This is intriguing because to get into a fairly dark subject here, different meditations since antiquity have addressed this moment in different ways. And one of the speakers in Plato's Symposia actually addresses this moment and faults Orpheus for not simply choosing death. Oh. Yeah, compares him unfavorably, in fact, to Achilles, Hmm. who acted out of vain, mad courage so that he could be joined with Patroclus, his lover, in the afterlife. Now, Now, that is not, of course, how most people would interpret the story of Achilles, and you can generally assume that every speaker in Plato who isn't Socrates is wrong. (laughs) That's how Socrates works. But it's worth throwing out there that there is this question of how does he keep on going? What does he live for? And in Ovid's Metamorphoses, the story of Orpheus is actually broken up oddly here for an extended period of time with Orpheus just singing lots of songs. Several of the stories that are in the Metamorphoses are actually just nested here as tales that Orpheus tells as he is wrestling with his grief. But not here, not in this opera, because they've got a story to tell and they're keeping on moving. Yeah, they're, they're going to stay focused. It sounds to me like you're describing a little bit of a to be or not to be moment. Yeah, and it is one of the great questions of life is how do you how do you live with yourself after unimaginable grief? How do you find your way and move on and find new purpose? And Orpheus is this great musician. He has so much that he can still do and contribute and be, but at least from where he's standing, none of that matters. We're going to listen to a little bit of the ending of Act 4, but since I threw out the to be or not to be, I wanted to make one other Shakespearean connection here, if you don't mind. This opera by Monteverdi Orfeo is being performed for the first time in 1607, and Grant, when was Shakespeare doing his work? This is late in Shakespeare's career, so Shakespeare's active from like 1590 to 1610, 1614, something like that. And Shakespeare's still got a few more years of plays in him at this point, but he's a contemporary. And this is a moment of tremendous intellectual foment. It's the moment when the King James Bible is being produced. It's the moment when Shakespeare is being produced. It's the era of Cervantes. Wow, prolific. In American history, which is a reference for many of our listeners, that is the year, 1607, when Jamestown, the first permanent English settlement, is founded in North America. Not exactly great plays being written at that point, but but it, it, it gives a little sense of what else is going on in the world when this important opera is composed. Yeah, it's a time when the world is changing and shifting very fast. The world has become interconnected in new ways, and that has great horrors to it in terms of 
the rise of slavery, of colonial oppression, of diseases that are being transmitted, but it also comes with this tremendous cultural exchange. And you really around the world find some very interesting things being produced here amidst the horrors of the time, and sometimes in direct response to the horrors of the time. Yes. Yes. Well, speaking of horrors, Orpheus has experienced them. And in our final act, Act 5, Orpheus is back among the living. He's back on the plains of Thrace and singing in a heart-rending way about his grief. Non sarai tu 
figurative senses Mm. and he is amidst the mortals who surround him and it's important to remember that in greek mythology and to some extent in our language and ideas about these things 
immortality is precisely what characterizes the gods. The gods are called the deathless gods, the Athanatoi, or the immortals, and sometimes in English. And the difference. Fundamentally, more than power, more than shape-shifting, more than dominion, the difference between human beings and the gods is mortality, that we are finite and limited. It's a great contrast to say the way that the Norse imagined their gods, who were very much mortal and killable. In fact, that's part of the point of the stories. Mm. But here we've got Orpheus, and he is wandering, and time and space are lost to him in certain ways. He is stuck in Thrace, where he discovered that his love had died. Yes, and there's just a tiny little bit of consolation and pity that reaches out to him in the voice of none other than Echo. In a kind manner, Echo, who is destined to only repeat what has just been said, tries to give a little bit of comfort to Orpheus. It's interesting, the dialogue between them. Uh, <laughs> she is not literally repeating him here, but she, she says very little. Only four words in Italian. And she is sort of his, his sounding board, the, the surface <laughs> off which he is uh, being echoed. But the reference is to one of the other great tragic love stories, which was perhaps for another time, that of Echo and her love Narcissus, oh, who yes. could never love her and indeed was only in love with himself. Hence our word narcissist. And Echo faded away for lack of love. And in the same way that Orpheus's love fades back into the spirits of the underworld, Echo fades into the mortal world and simply repeats, just as she repeated the words of her beloved Narcissus. Well, Orpheus is grateful and shares that gratitude with Echo. For he, He's grateful for any sort of comfort to be offered to him. But he also knows that it's not going to be enough for him to rebuild his life. Not content to just express how heartbroken he is about his loss of his true love Eurydice, he criticizes all women as haughty and faithless and callous and fickle to those who adore them, devoid of judgment and all nobility of thought. Therefore, may it never happen that love should pierce my heart with his golden arrow for a worthless woman. Strong words. Yeah, he's, he's pretty upset. And as people who are pretty upset sometimes do, he decides to blame somebody who's not really, not really their fault. But he, uh, yeah, he swears off women utterly and completely. And he's overheard. And who it is that overhears him and how they respond is how I'm going to keep my promise to you and talk to you about the two different endings. Can you talk a little bit about what you know about the ancient Greek myth and how it ends? It really, none of them have happy endings, honestly, when you go down far enough. <laughs> what ends up happening is that it depends on exactly which author you read, whether what happens is that offense is taken at his casting away women, or whether offense is taken at his neglect of the divine worship of, in particular, Bacchus, Dionysus, the god of revelry and merriment and wine. What happens is that he is torn apart by 
Mayanads, the Bacantes, the frenzied women who worship the god Bacchus. Literally torn apart. Yes, literally torn to pieces, and in some traditions, his severed head continued on singing and floated across the sea and became a sight of oracle. Oh dear. Well, well, we don't get that in this opera. <laughs> but... In the original 1607 presentation of this opera, and we know this from the printed librettos that survive, these devotees of Bacchus, these frenzied women, do come after him. And he escapes the stage. And we, being well-educated people, we know the myth and we know what's going to happen to him. And it's what you just described. But interestingly, the score that is published under the auspices of Francesco Gonzaga, that son of the Duke of Mantua, who originally commissioned this piece, the 1609 score doesn't have that terrifying ending of, of him just about to be torn to shreds, as is known in the myth. It has what passes for a happy ending, which actually is in keeping with what we expect from most Baroque operas, with no matter how terrible the situation, in fact, there's some sort of a resolution and a happy ending. So in that score, and in most productions that you'll see now, certainly the two that I watched, it's not these, these frenzied women, these devotees of Bacchus who come after him because of his speaking out against women. It's his father, the god Apollo, who hears him. And Apollo is traditionally associated with Orpheus. In Greek myth, Apollo and Bacchus are sometimes set against each other as these different kinds of patrons of entertainment that apollo stands for the kind of entertainment that uplifts your mind and there is beautiful singing and poetry as opposed to bacchic revelry which is much more drunkenness and the sort of dancing that leads to trouble oh i, I suppose you could think of it as highbrow and lowbrow yes but with more moral emphasis to it Hmm. Well, the version we most mostly follow today follows the published score from 1609, two years after the original production. There are no frenzied women on the stage. The regular chorus is there sympathizing ultimately and, and finally celebrating because Apollo descends. It's actually argued that Monteverdi wanted to do, I mean, not proven, but argued that Monteverdi wanted to have this ending initially, but to have a god come into the scene, they needed what's called a cloud machine. Otherwise known as a deus ex machina. Exactly, exactly. So you had to have him descend to the earthly realm from the heavenly realm. But again, the modern productions I've seen just have Apollo essentially appear, walk onto stage. No need for a cloud machine because we can we can kind of roll with it. But Apollo is there offering words of consolation and probably more importantly, fatherly advice. He asks, why, my son, do you give yourself over to anger and grief? And he repeats some of what has just been noted by the chorus, which is that Orpheus had given himself over to extremes of passion and extremes of despair. And Apollo says, it's, it's too much. You, you can't go to these extremes. You cannot be a slave to your passions. And you must know 
that if you're going to live on earth, no happiness is lasting. And ever since then, all musicians have ceased from being overly dramatic. (laughs) Well, no, and they can't help it. They're mortal. They're human. I mean, we are subject to our passions, are we not? Indeed. But to your point about moralizing, this is exactly what Apollo is trying to advise us, it seems. Understand that the happiness can't necessarily last. You can't expect it to last on Earth. But if it can't last on Earth, where can it last? In heaven. And that's exactly where Apollo invites him to dwell. And Orpheus gives up his his lamenting and he says, I will be guided with you, my father. How fortunate I am to have such a wise father. And ultimately, in, in the version with a cloud machine, he ascends to heaven with his father, Apollo. So Orpheus asks Apollo, but will I never again see my beloved Eurydice? And Apollo, helping us with our happy ending or what passes for a happy ending, provides some consolation for him. He says that he shall see her in the stars. There's nothing further said about it, but our classically well-educated audience doesn't need any more because they know their mythological stories. And in the old myths, well, some of them anyway, she is transfigured into a starry constellation, which is a thing that happened with, in particular, unattainable objects of desire in Greek mythology. Yeah, a quick scan of any list of constellations and you'll see plenty of Greek mythological figures. So we get what feels like the beginning of what becomes the model. We said this was a model opera that is followed. Everyone comes together, everyone on stage singing to bring resolution to the story and a bit of an uplift instead of sending everyone out on a downer. And so Apollo and Orpheus will sing about the fact that they are going into heaven together where they have virtue and joy and peace. And then we have all of our chorus singing again, joy for the happy resolution in Orpheus's life. And a little bit of moralizing besides. They treat Orpheus's ordeal as a ordeal with moral benefit, which is to say that what he has sown in sorrow, he shall reap the fruit of grace. And this is a more Christian idea. There is certainly no belief among the classical authors that anyone who sows sorrow reaps grace, (laughs) or that there is any recompense at all in terms of justice as we might understand it. The realm of heaven is the realm of the gods, and for Orpheus to go there is for him to be deified. Again, the Greeks did not actually do this with Orpheus, but they were familiar with this sort of thing, where a story would end... um, Euripides Medea, for instance, with a character being accepted into the heavenly realm and deified in some sense. But it's sort of an odd ending. Yes. I have a a bit of a a hard time with it because I feel like it is clashing these two things that are opposed to one another a little too hard. It feels to me like Orpheus... It is interesting to me that Orpheus accepts salvation apart from Eurydice, unless we're meant to think that her entering the celestial constellations, in fact, brings her to him in some way. No, I I don't think that's the implication from the libretto, as I read it anyway. But you know, it's quite a contrast. We previously talked about the Gluck opera, 
episode 63 of Opera for Everyone. <laughs> and Gluck wants a very definitive, clear happy ending. So he actually has Pluto, god of the underworld, show sympathy and return Eurydice to Orpheus, completely rewriting the myth. And I should say that some versions of the myth are not precisely full-down endings. Even in Virgil's description, the happy ending, such as it is, is that Orpheus's ghostly shade is, when he dies, ultimately able to keep company with Eurydice, even though they are no longer the people they were. Well, thus concludes another episode of Opera for Everyone. We'll listen to our rousing conclusion, which, by the way, is followed by a small piece of dance music so that we can carry on the celebratory mood for a little longer, even after the singing ends. We have to keep Bacchus happy, of course. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> and, and besides, we're all going to go out and get a drink because we couldn't even stop. There's no intermission. It's pretty clear from the libretto that there's no pause. There's no intermission. The scene changes are simple and minimal and just straight through the audience sits. So sure, let's celebrate with Bacchus and then let's go have a little refreshment. <laughs> I think we've earned it. What do you think? Indeed. Thanks for having me on. Grant, thank you so much. As always. <laughs> Se non seguissi il tuo fedel consiglio, saliam, saliam, Grazie a tutti.
Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I've been your host, Pat Wright. And I'm Grant. If you've enjoyed our show and would like to hear more, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Opera can seem challenging, but everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. Because we believe opera Opera is is for for everyone. everyone.